All right, well, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here at Trailhead, and I am sorry that um, I'm not with you in the flesh. Uh, you guys get flat Steve this morning. This is not normal. If you're a guest with us, if, if you're, you're new around here, um, this is not the way we normally do it. Um, I am actually, um, at this very minute, not the minute I'm talking, but the minute you're watching this, um, heading to the airport, and, and I'll be flying to Houston and then on to Kyrgyzstan, um, for a couple weeks of um, doing support with a, a team that has been um, on the ground there, uh, doing doing gospel work there, um, and, and so I thank you for giving us uh, a little bit of grace as we just try and figure out how all of these crazy things put together work, and, and um, thankful at least that we have technology that allows it, allows me to in a sense be in two places at once. All right, this morning we're starting a new series, and I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward. To this series. Uh, I've been working on it, uh, as I'll share in a minute, it, um, for probably about uh, six or eight months. Um, the series is called Deep Rest, and, and the subtitle is, is, is Finding True Rest for Your Soul. Um, we are crazy, busy people. That's just the reality of it. And in fact, as I've just kind of been talking to people about the series coming up and, and about um, the things that we we're going to unpack, um, the response has been really encouraging and in fact, very strong because I think we, we all have this sense that we're just tired, you know, that, that, that we're getting a little worn out, that, that we're getting stretched a little too far, that we're bouncing back, but we're not bouncing back as far, that we're recovering from work, but we're not coming to it with the same enthusiasm and energy, that, that our families are not getting the best of us, that we're not getting the best of life. Um, we're, we're busy, tired, worn out people. And here's the deal, you guys. I'm just going to, I'm going to speak from my own experience. I'm going to speak to you from years of just sitting across the coffee table and talking to people and counseling people. We don't know how to rest well. We are not a culture, we are not a people that value rest, that know how to do rest. We don't know what it means. And so we do a lot of things that kind of look like rest. We escape, we, we try to slow down, um, we'll indulge our senses in, in a great meal or, or some pleasure like a movie or a good TV series or but a lot of times we invest ourselves heavily into these activities. And the reality is, and you know this is true, you often walk away more drained than when you turn to them. It's like a family vacation that you have to recover from. You know, you, you're working so hard to go to this thing and then you go do this thing and you come back and you're, you're more exhausted than when you, you left, right? Here's the deal, you guys. We need help. We need help. As a culture, we need help. As a people, we need help. And as followers of Christ, we need help because we li live in the same culture. We swim in the same cultural stream as everyone around us. And we're influenced by the same forces. And I, there are some things going on in our culture, things going on in our hearts that are, that are going to kill us. They're going to rob our lives of what makes life worth living. I mean, we'll keep living and we'll keep fighting and we'll keep going. But we'll have less and less joy, less and less hope, less and less resilience, less and less um, enthusiasm for what's going on in life. We need rest. We need deep rest. So today, um, I'm going to do a couple things here. Uh, my first 
goal is to help us get a scope of the problem. What, what is the problem? How do we define the problem? How do we understand the problem? Secondly, I'm going to tell you a story. And then thirdly, I'm going to point you to the solution. Uh, and in fact, I think there's a magic key that I'm, I'm going to share with you that really is a powerful um, key to understanding, unlocking the mystery, the, the secret of rest. Um, and, and we're going to go over the next six weeks and continue to unpack that, that secret. But that's where we're going this morning. <clears throat> now, to help get my head around um, the problem of um, just our exhaustion, our busyness, our relentless pace, um, I, I jumped on Facebook, as some of you know, and, and I actually posted some questions, and, and many of you responded, and I was very thankful for that. It was great research material. Um, but I asked two very simple questions on this Facebook post, and it was, what, what do you see is making you tired? And what would you need to get untired? What, what do you see that, that's making you tired, and what would you need to make you untired? First thing that was interesting to me is almost everybody could identify what they felt like was making them tired. Only a small percentage of people could actually identify what they thought was going to make them untired. A lot of people just said, I'm tired and I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Uh, but I got some great comments. And, and I think that these things really speak powerfully to where we are as a culture. And, and so I'm going to share some of these things. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I grabbed some that are representative because there were some themes that ran through these answers. And, and I kind of uh, lumped them together. And I want to see if some of these resonate with you. So I'm, we're going to throw these on the screen and um, as I go through here, and, and um, I'm going to read some of these, these quotes. I'll keep them anonymous. Don't worry. If you, if you post it on my Facebook page, I, I won't call you out in public. But, uh, so take a look at this quote. Take a look at this quote. It says, I need more time in the day to get my to-do lists finished so that I can feel accomplished, and then I can finally rest. I need more time in the day to get my to-do lists finished. Now take a look at this next quote. That's um, kind of the same theme. I am literally lost in a lie that says, you may not stop moving until every task around you is finished. Every mouth is fed and everyone helped in some personal way. Sometimes I literally will not stop to rest unless I am forced. Lost in a lie that says you cannot stop moving until every task around you is finished. Look at the next one. I was raised to believe that rest was sinful, so I have a hard time dealing with downtime. You notice the theme here with, with these, these three? Um, all three of them deal with uh, uh, what, is, what is keeping me from rest? What, what, is, what is making me tired? My to-do list. My need to accomplish. My need to perform. Some of you have a very literal checklist, don't you? You know, you've got, you've got the whole list, and, and as you go down, you check things off, right? And if you do something that you forgot to put on your list, what do you do? Come on, admit it. You write it on there so you can check it off, right? Because there's that sense of, of accomplishment. There's that sense of release, like, yes, yes, endorphins, right? Every time you put a check on there, a little thing goes on in your brain. You're like, that feels good, right? And so you have this idea that if you can just somehow magically get this entire checklist done, then you'll feel good. This is deeply rooted in our culture. It goes back to kind of a theme that, that was often identified as what's called the, the Protestant work ethic. 
this sense that, that God has given us unlimited possibilities and almost unlimited potential if we'll just work hard enough to get there. If we will just pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, if we will just be strong enough to tell our own stories, if we will just work hard enough, be diligent enough, apply ourselves enough, accomplish enough, right? And what comes out of this is, is a lot of great stuff. I mean, there, there's something to be said for productivity, right? God created us to be productive. God created us to be creative. He created us to accomplish things. And there is a reason it feels good to accomplish things and be productive because we're, we're created to do it, right? But, but the subtle message that comes out of it is this. If you do more, you're worth more. If you do more, you're worth more. If you stay busy enough, you'll eventually become important. And the subtle lie that comes out of that is that you're important because you're busy. And some of you believe that. I'm important because I'm busy. And I know that because I, I've fallen into that trap. There were, there were years when I was working in, in education. Some of you know I was, a, I was a school teacher and a principal for 17 years. And um, after I moved into administration, um, my days changed and from the classroom where I was driven by homework and students. And suddenly it was paperwork and administration. And some of it I didn't really know how to do well. And I remember there were seasons where um, I just got in the habit of walking quickly. <laughs> And it kind of masked my insecurity in my job. I didn't really know what I was doing. I wasn't great at administration. I could lead, but, but the managerial part was very difficult for me, and I just didn't really know how to do it well. And, and I found that if I walked quickly, people didn't bother me. If I walked quickly, people felt like there was something urgent, something important going on in my life. And I picked this up, this sense that if I could just carry the sense of urgency, if I could just hurry, people perceived me as being involved in some important work. Some of you are driven by that, by a need to stay busy so that you can stay important. You keep your social calendar so packed because it makes you feel more loved. You keep your work schedule so packed because it makes you feel like you're worth more. Do more, worth more. The problem is it's a lie because you know what a lot of people say what the solution is. The problem is my to-do list drives me, right? What's the solution? Almost universally, everyone says, I just need more time. I just need more time. Of course, that is an impossible request. Everybody has the same exact amount of time. And so what do we do? We don't try to get more time. We get more efficient with the time we have, right? We go to efficiency seminars. We go to productivity seminars. We learn how to keep calendars. We learn how to cut corners. We learn how to fit more things in. Let me ask you something. Does that produce any more free time in your life? I'm guessing it doesn't. See, even if you could give yourself more time, the problem isn't the time. The problem is the way we drive our lives. We would just fill the time with more to do. Because you do more, you're worth more. So we feel compelled to stay busy, to drive ourselves. And, and the reality is that's, that's a lot of us don't have to pretend. I mean, we just go from busy to super busy. That's our lives. Those are the seasons. Busy, crazy, busy. Busy, crazy, busy. And you keep thinking, when I just get to the next season, when I get to the next semester, when I get to the next stage of life, when I get there, then I will have more time. All right? That's a problem and it's a lie. And it, and it keeps us, it actually blocks us from rest. All right, take a look at these quotes. Let's take a look at this theme. First quote. 
trying to be whatever anybody needs regardless of overcommitting. What they're saying is I, I'm driven, I'm tired because I'm, I'm trying to be what anybody needs regardless of overcommitting. Even when I try to sit back, there's a nagging stress to be more and to do more. Now, notice that's not the checklist primarily, although there is a checklist connected to this. What that one's driven by is not necessarily a need to achieve. This one's driven by what? A need to make people happy, right? Trying to be what anybody needs regardless of overcommitting, right? Take a look at this next quote. What's draining is not having the time to process my thoughts and emotions and not living up to my own standards of daily success. So again, checklist idea, but, but not productivity, right? Not having time to process my thoughts and emotions and not living up to my own standards of daily success. This next one's one of my favorites. Um, let's put that up there. It says, kids, work, mostly the kids, a little bit of the dog, summer schedules, mainly the kids. Can you relate with that? Um, I know a lot of young moms definitely do. What, what is the problem? What is the theme that we see, see coming out of these? What, what are people identifying as the thing that is, that is driving them and robbing their life of rest? Well, in all three of these, it's emotional drain usually caused by people. It is emotional drain usually caused by people. Um, people come in all shapes and sizes. Some of them are big and annoying, like, like your boss or your coworkers or your spouse. Some of them are small and cute some of the time. Annoying, demanding, draining the rest of the time. Let's be honest, right? But people need. People demand. People request, right? I'm reminded of the, there's a commercial on TV with the, it's a family guy thing. I don't even remember what the commercial was for, but Stewie, the little dude that's got the football shaped head. All I remember is him just standing there going, mom, 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 ma, 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 mommy, 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 mama, 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 mother, mother, mother. Some of you, that is how your life feels. You know what I mean? You feel like you are in a family guy commercial. And it's not just your kids. It is your, your spouse. It is your friends. It is the needy neighbor. It is the needy boss. It is, it is just people on top of people on top of people. Kids, boss, job expectations, other people's expectations, your own expectations driving you. And what it does is it creates an incessant demand on your energy on your resources, on your creativity, and it creates an overwhelming sense of urgency. Everything becomes urgent. Every need becomes urgent. Every person becomes urgent. Every, and, and, and you can only live in that sense of urgency so long, as you guys know, before you start shutting down. That's why that commercial is so funny. The mother is sitting there just zoned out, not even present. Right, Stewie's just down there, ma, 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 right? She's gone, right? She doesn't need Calgon to take her away. She is checked out. Her brain is on autopilot. And that's where we go when we have these incessant demands, right? It creates a fatigue. It's an it's a inter, interpersonal fatigue. It gets super intense. Some of you know, like if you're in the pastoral ministry, if you're in counseling, or if you're um, in in, in certain medical fields where you're constantly dealing with, with people's suffering. 
There's this thing that we call compassion fatigue, right? It, it, just, it, it is this sense of continually putting yourself out there, continually connecting, continually identifying, continually empathizing, continually serving. And you can only give like that for so long before you start shutting down. What's our perceived solution? We need to get away. We need fewer people. We need to get away from the knowing boss. I need to get a vacation away from my kids. I, I, need, I need to, and, and, and sometimes it's just I need a night away, right? Sometimes it's I need a life away. But people feel so exhausted and so driven that they feel compelled to get away from what they believe is sucking life out of them. Now again, in, in each one of these, there's an element of truth. The problem is when we misidentify the problem, we misidentify the solution. If you think that's your primary problem, you're going to see that as your primary solution. It's not. It's not. All right, take a look at these. See how, uh, how if you identify with, with any of these. First quote, monotony wears me out. <clears throat> Getting in a rut and routine is a quick way to tire yourself and get discouraged. Monotony wears me out. What's kind of funny is that, that one, I wasn't thinking about that, but when I read it, I was like, man, I, I identify with that. Monotony wears me out. Getting in a rut and a routine too quick, man, just discourages you. Look at this next quote. Um, I'm tired of feeling desperate for the next thing to take place, whether it's accomplishing a task, getting the position, or schedule at work, buying something. I tend to always be hoping anxiously for the next desire to take place and fearful it won't work out the way I think I need it to. So what makes you tired? This desperate need, this feeling that, man, I just need the next thing to take place. Look at this third one. Everything keeps changing. As soon as I start getting momentum, the goal changes or the challenge I was facing goes away only to be replaced by a new one. What do all three of these things have in common? They don't seem to have the issue of monotony, the issue of desiring the next thing, the issue of everything changing. They seem to be opposite, but they're really not. The problem is the way we deal with change. We live in a rapidly changing society. Things are continually moving and morphing and changing. The world we live in today is not the same world that we lived in when we were kids, right? The world that I lived in as a kid, there was no internet, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like personal computers didn't even come around until I was in middle school, right? Now, that's, if you were born in the, in the 90s, you lived in the age when the internet exploded, right? The world will not be the same 10, 15 years from now as it is now. Things are changing incredibly rapidly. And here's the thing. I think as a culture, we have become addicted to change. We love change. We love it. We, we get tired of it, right? And, and, and the challenge, though, is that things change so quickly that it often exhausts us. And so there's either not enough of it, and we get bored. I think about what boredom is. Boredom is a, a sluggish lack of excitement, right? It is the opposite of rest. Boredom drains us of joy, of purpose, of drive. People who are bored are like, you know, they're walking into a headwind. There's just nothing. They're apathetic. If there's not enough change, we get bored. And a lot of you sitting here this morning, that's probably one of the chief things that's draining your life is honestly you're just disengaged and bored with life. For others of you, the change has been too much. 
It has come too rapidly. It has been too radical. And you're experiencing change fatigue. This sense that, that you, you just had to adapt and adapt and adapt to each of the changing environments, each of the changing demands, each of the changing expectations. And it's just wearing you out, right? So we either don't have enough change or we have too much. And the problem is that there's no balance for us because we're so driven by our love for change, our need for change, the, the emotional and, and uh, stimulating factors that come with change, right? We live in this, this multicolored, multi-sound, um, 3D world, if you want to put it that way, this sense that we kind of constantly want information and, and stimuli and, and, um, and, and, and innovation, something new to entertain us, something new to enter- engage us, something new to, to listen to, something new to watch, something new to talk about, something new to, right? And, and we either are getting bored or we're getting exhausted, I have friends in other countries who talk about how we as Americans are honestly crazy. They talk about our pace of life, that we are a go, go, go society, that sense of just change and engage and move, right? But the problem is we're kind of like a movie that's played at double time. Um, you ever watch when, when things go too fast and the voices get really high like Mickey Mouse? and You can only run at that pace so long. You can only run at that pace so long before you, you, you wear down. The problem is when we start wearing down and it slows down, instead of finding rest, we instead find boredom and disengagement. We don't find what reinvigorates us. Technology actually plays a critical role in this. I don't think we can overestimate the impact technology has had on the American way of life. Take a look at these quotes. And see if you can identify with these. First of all, I think technology and the never-ending access to, well, everything is draining. You ever experienced that? That sense of, of, of a never-ending access to everything. Every bit of bad news. Every event that's taking place. Every shift in the social-political landscape globally. Every movement in the market every new band, every new movie, every new internet phenom, every new, it is draining. Just the amount, the sheer amount of information that we are called upon to process every single day or we choose to process. Look at this quote. I am just drowning in email, social media, texting, and then my endless pursuit of more information Having constant connection to an electronic device is a problem. <laughs> yes, it is. It is a problem. Why? Because it is, it is that uh, hard need for change, for entertainment, for, for amusement, for, for something more to look at, something more to hear. You guys, think about, think about the way our culture has changed over the last couple hundred years. We have always been a hardworking culture. That's, that's just part of what it means to be American. It's part of what it means to be in the West. We're a hardworking culture, driven, moving into the frontier, moving into developing the unknown, uh, inventive, creative, hard workers, right? But as a culture, we started out as an, as an agrarian society. Think about the rhythms of an agrarian society. See, your life rhythms are controlled by your cultural rhythms. In an agrarian society, your life is controlled by the harvest. It's controlled by the seasons, right? There's a time for, for, for sowing. 
There's a time for tilling and protecting and growing and, and maintaining. There's a time for reaping, right? Your day is bookended by sunrise and sunset. And in an agrarian society, you know, in, in the 17, early 1800s, you know, you, you got up when the sun was up. If you were, you were super um, aggressive, you'd be up before the sun rose. In fact, a lot of times they would have to be to start doing things around the house so that when the sun rose outside, they'd be ready to go. But when the sun set, their day was over. Right? Their, their, their life rhythms were governed by the world's rhythms, by the, by the rhythms of their ecology, the rhythms of their culture, the rhythms of the environment. Rhythms of work, rhythms of rest. Rhythms of engagement, rhythms of disengagement. Times to sow, times to reap. That changed. When we shifted from being an agrarian society to becoming an industrialized society, as we became an, an industrialized society, it fundamentally changed the fabric of the rhythms of the American life. Life rhythms were no longer governed by the natural rhythms of, of um, working in a field. Right? Suddenly, dad, who used to, to work in the field and train his kids and, and the family that worked together and, and um, all these things that were good for the family, good for health, good for... That was all, suddenly 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day, dad is taken out of the home. And he works. And the new rhythm is the shift, whatever the shift is, right? Because now we have lights and we have all these things, right? So we can, we can work, we can keep factories going 24-7. And so whatever your shift is, that becomes the rhythm of the family. It's no longer governed by natural limitations. It's now governed by production cycles and work shifts, there's been another shift in our culture. We have shifted from being an industrialized society to be an information society. We, we now have an information economy. Think about what that's done, you guys. Think about it. When does an information economy shut down? What are the rhythms of an information-driven economy, culture, society? What are the rhythms? Bandwidth. The bigger the bandwidth, the better. The faster it goes, the better. The more you can stream, the better. There are no rhythms. It is a nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven day a week onslaught of information, stimulation, activity, demand, productivity, escape, 24 7. The lines between home time and work time are gone. When are you on the clock at work? When are you on the clock at home? The lines are gone. The lines between productivity and leisure are gone. Let's be honest. Right? There was a term that was coined a while back, and, and that's where we spend most of our time, is this, this area of leisure, right? Work and leisure. We have, we have multiple tabs open on the browser of our life, Right? And, and some of those tabs are Facebook or, or, or a game or a streaming movie or iTunes. Some of those tabs are work-related, and um, it's all blurred together. When are we at work? When are we at home? When are we being productive? When are we at leisure? When are we at, at, at work? And when are we engaged with rest? We can't underestimate the impact these societal changes have had on the rhythms of simply being human today in this culture at this time. 
The rhythms that used to exist naturally in our society simply don't exist anymore. And I'm telling you, we're dying. It will kill us. So what do we do? Should we all just read Wendell Berry? Go buy a farm in Arkansas and stop wearing clothes with zippers? Is that going to be the solution? Is it really that we just need to, to kind of go back to the way things were, idealize the agrarian society? I, I don't think so, you guys. I don't think so, because I think that a lot of the problems we're facing today were the same problems they faced then. Now, now the cultural rhythms were different. Things are more challenging in some ways for us now than they were then, but I guarantee you people still had the same problem engaging rest then. The, the context was just different. So I'm going to point you to the real solution, but before I do, I want to tell you a story. And it's going to be my story. Um, so I'm going to unpack a little bit about my life over the last six to eight months, um, because that has so shaped the way I'm coming into this series and the way I'm engaging these texts. Last spring, um, I guess it was probably in March, I don't remember exactly, um, I, I grabbed um, our elder candidates, we have two guys that are going through the elder process, uh, three guys, and I grabbed those guys, and um, we, we put a premium on transparency and honesty at Trailhead, and, and that begins at the leadership level. We, 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 um, if things aren't going well, we talk about it, you know, and, and, uh, and so I sat them down, and I was like, you guys, I, I'm going to share with you some stuff, and I don't know how to process it, and I don't know what to do with it, but I just think you need to know it, and I think we need to pray about it. I think I'm beginning to experience the beginning stages of burnout. Now, I didn't know what burnout was. Um, I hadn't studied it. Uh, it's not like I was coming to the table with, look, I've got eight of the ten symptoms. You know, I've got the behavioral guide right here. What I did know is this. Um, my energy level was as low as it had ever been. It was like I was walking into a headwind every day when I got up. Every step was a labor. It was like I was walking up a hill and the mud was two feet deep. Every step was labor. And what that meant was there were things that should have been giving me joy. And I just wasn't having any joy. I was having spiritual conversations with people and, and God was doing incredible things in their life and I'm just sitting there detached, um, dying inside. You know, we're seeing people become believers. We're, we're seeing God do incredible things in our church. I'm seeing great things happen, and, and I'm finding myself just almost watching from a, a distance. Um, I found myself experiencing less and less joy in my personal life, um, less and less engagement. I would come in, and, and I'm just confessing to you guys, I'm just being real, but there were times I would come in, and I'm getting ready to preach, and my prayer at the back of the room is, God, I need you to show up and do something in this sermon, because I got nothing. It's not me today. And some of you are like, well, that's good. It's about time. <laughs> you shouldn't have gotten up there and thought you had anything special. Anyway, it's all God, right? I get that, right? Theologically, I get that. What I'm saying, though, was, was normally there's a joy in the approach. And what I found was that there was still joy in the preaching. I would get up here and I would open up the Word, and, and, and there really is. I mean, I just have a lot of fun when I, when I get to use my gift um, in teaching and, and, and just kind of unpacking things from the Word. And It never got to the point where I was mechanical, and, and I, that wasn't life-giving to me. But I will tell you, the preparation of the sermons became the hardest thing in my life. The 15 hours that I was putting into researching and writing the sermons became the hardest, most miserable part of my week. The creative process of engaging the Word of God, of trying to figure out how to preach. Man, it was just hard. It was just hard. And I... And, and, and 
you know, I'm just going to, the, the thing was, I'm, I'm in it. I'm asking, can I keep doing this forever? And the answer is, if, if this is the direction it has to go, the answer is no. If, if this is the way my life has to be, I can't keep doing this. I went from, and, and, and think about rhythms. I mean, this is something I've reflected on. 17 years in education, in education, you have rhythms, right? You, you work in a school year, you have summers off. Even in administration, your summers are downtime. So you can work really, really hard, but you have a vacation that you're always looking forward to. So I would do all-nighters. I would kill myself. I would crunch time. And then I would hit a break, and I would spend half of it lying on my back, you know, just wiped out. I got into ministry six years ago, and in the last six years, I've had maybe two periods of downtime. As soon as you're finishing one thing, the next thing's already started, if not already halfway done. There was no natural rhythm to my life anymore, and so the patterns that I had established were not healthy ones. The, the sprint and crash, sprint and crash, that was not a healthy pattern. I don't believe it was honoring God. It wasn't working anymore, and in fact, my new schedule was in fact highlighting the fact that I was not handling my work well. So during that period of time, I went to the elder candidates, and I was like, hey, you guys, I have a great idea. I'm feeling really tired, so next fall, why don't we preach on rest? Because I need it. I feel like it's something I really need to engage. And so um, we decided that, that this sermon series, was we were going to preach it um, this fall. And so I started reading about Sabbath, and I started reading about, uh, and, and I really actually went toward more toward this, uh, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in refreshing our souls, in filling us, in, in giving us life? And I was really driven by necessity more than intellectual curiosity. I wasn't reading and studying a whole lot that I hadn't already read or studied. But I was, there was a desperation in my soul. Now, what ended up happening is coming out of the spring, I went into the summer, and this summer turned out to be um, probably one of the worst I've ever had. I mean, it just was, I mean, from a scheduling perspective, it was insane. Um, it was tight anyway with all the events that I had packed in, all the things that I needed to do, but there were a lot of crises that came up to fill all the gaps. Every day was scheduled. I had days, and I do schedule days off. That was just been a pattern that I've, but I came to hate my day off. I didn't know what to do with it. I would get to my day off, and, and it was more work to stop working than it was to keep working. And so I would resent my day off. I get to this point where I'm like, if I just need to go do my email, I just need to go work on this project, I just need to go make these phone calls, right? But no, I can't do that. I got to take a day off. God says I need to take a Sabbath, right? So I'm, I'm going to take this day off. And, and so I would, what I would do is fill it with distraction. Things that I, that I, whether it was going to a movie or going for a walk, and I'm not saying there wasn't any refreshment in those things, were like if I was exercising or, or spending time reading the Bible, but, but there was something about it that wasn't fully connecting. It was like I was just getting enough charge in my battery to make it through the day. You know what I'm saying? Like one of those old phones that never gets a full charge, and so you're constantly having to play. I just, it was like I could never get a good enough charge. So I just put my head down and I kept going. And there were some things that came in that, were, that just were emotionally hard and draining for people that I loved, and so they were hard for me. I did some weddings. I did some funerals. I did some other hard things this summer. And it all came to a head about six weeks ago. Um, and it's really fresh. I mean, it's really new. Um, but about six weeks ago, I hit, I hit a wall, unlike any wall that I, I had ever hit. Um, I, I came to church that morning. I wasn't preaching Corey was preaching, and um, uh, he was um, he was preaching when I walked in. And as soon as I walked in, I had this overwhelming sense that I just couldn't be here. Every person I saw was warm and friendly, and I loved them. 
It wasn't that. It was that there was something building up inside of me that I knew was going to break. And I didn't think it was going to be real pretty when it did, and I knew I couldn't be here when it happened. I went into my office, and Lauren was there, and she went and got some people to come pray over me. And I'm very thankful for those friends, and I'm thankful for their prayers. But I got up, and I'm like, I, I have to get out. I went home, and that afternoon, I broke down. Um, I cried. <laughs> I mean, I cried. And I cried for probably about six hours straight. When that dam broke, it broke. Um, I didn't understand it. I didn't know what was going on in my heart. I just knew something was not working right. And things were shutting down. And uh, it was rough. Now, here's the deal. That didn't fix it. It's not like all of a sudden that was a cathartic experience. When I got back up, I'm like, yeah, that was awesome, and I'm, I'm ready to go. What it did is that it was a crisis that forced me to realize something was happening in my heart that I had to pay attention to. I had to slow down enough to listen. Now, that happened, and, and this is no accident because we have a sovereign God, but that happened um, right before my time to take vacation. I had only scheduled myself one week of vacation because I didn't think I had, enough, I had enough time to take more time off. And even that one week of vacation was honestly only five days. Um, I went ahead and said, no, I'm taking two weeks off and one week for reentry. Um, I have to. And during that two weeks, I shut my computer, turned off my phone. Some of you know because you tried to contact me during that time. A lot of you, I announced it before I was going, and a lot of you prayed for me in respect to that time, and I'm incredibly thankful for it. But during that period of time, a lot of things happened in my heart. Um, I prayed. I listened. God showed me some things I needed to confess and repent, genuine repentance, not just confession, but repentance. And God awoke within me a new sense of worship. And you guys, something incredible happened during that two weeks. It really did. Something incredible happened. I discovered a secret. Um, and what's wild about this is that it was a secret I already knew, but I rediscovered it. And I'm going to unpack it more in the coming weeks, but I want to give you a taste of it now. Because part of the breakthrough for me, part of what has just lit me back up, came from Genesis 1, the passage that we read this morning. Um, and to set it up, let me ask you something. What do you really think? If I were to ask you honestly right now, what do you think you really need to feel rested? Is it more time? More efficiency? Fewer demands on your emotional reserve? Fewer demands on your time? Fewer demands on your creativity? More variety in your life? Less change in your life? A vacation? A longer vacation? A longer and better vacation? You guys, those things can all be part of the solution. I'm not going to say they can't be. They absolutely can be. They can all be part of the solution, but they will not fix our problem because our main problem isn't with our schedules or with demands of life. The main problem isn't with our kids or our job or our spouse. Our main problem isn't with the internet. Our main problem is not with self-control. 
our main problem is not with having too much to do or not having enough to do. Our main problem is with our heart. Our real problem, you guys, is that we don't know how to delight in the right things. And so we try to delight in all the wrong things. Because true rest is absolutely rooted in delight. And that is the secret of Sabbath that we're going to unpack over the next six weeks. Take a quick look at Genesis 1 as we wrap this up. Let me give you a glimpse. At the end of Genesis 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. That's the sixth day. At the end of each day, God creates something. He says, at the end of the day, He looks at it and He says, It is good, it is good, it is good. On the end of the seventh, on the sixth day, He says, He saw everything He had made, including mankind, and behold, what, what He's saying there is, I want you, He's inviting us, look at it from God's perspective, right? And He sees it and He says, It is very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Essentially what he was saying was God looked at his work, the result of his creativity, the result of his productivity, and he said, I like this. I delight in this. This brings me joy. This brings me pleasure. It is worth beholding. And then God did something really weird at the beginning of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work, all that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all the work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day. The word Sabbath, by the way, means seventh. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy or set apart for a sacred purpose. That's what holy means. Because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. You guys... Why did God have to rest? Why did God have to rest? Was he, was he worn out from all that crazy work? You know, hard work, you know, thinking about redwoods and platypuses and, or platypi. You know, I mean, is, this, just, is, it, is it exhaustion? Is it like one of those beer commercials where at the end of a long day, he's just going to go and he's going to have a cerveza and he's going to chill out and he's going to check out from the, I mean, is this, he's like, he needs a, a masseuse, you know, to rub his back because he's, what's, what's going on with this? Why does God, the creator of all things, omnipotent, all energy, all power, why does he need rest? He didn't need to. He wanted to. He didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't rest because he had nothing to do. He didn't rest because he was too tired to start the next thing. You guys, he rested because what he made was delightful. And he delighted in delighting in it. He rested because God the Creator put His glory in the creation. And when He looked at the creation, especially mankind, who was created in His very image, He saw the reflection of His glory and He said, this is worth taking a day and delighting in what is truly delightful. 
the Sabbath. The one day out of seven. You know, in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is actually one of the Ten Commandments. And for a long time, that, that's how I primarily understood Sabbath, was the sense that it was connected with the law. You know, that, that God commands, you're, you're not going to, you know, murder, you won't steal, you won't sleep with people that aren't your wife, and you're going to take a day off once a week. And so I saw it as an issue of obedience. I will take a day off because um, God told me to, and I, and I just have to, so I'll take a day off, right? You guys listen to me. The Sabbath is not primarily about command. This was the breakthrough for me. When I was sitting in this passage, this is where the light went on. It's something I already knew, but I, I come to see it in a new way, and it's this. Sabbath isn't a command. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to delight in what is truly, infinitely, ultimately delightful. It is an invitation to not just rest from our work, but to rest in the rest under the work, the rest that God wired into the very created order. Why did God on the seventh day rest? Why at the very beginning? Because I think he was showing us that he has actually wired Sabbath rest into the created order. He created us for productivity. But our primary purpose is not productivity. Our primary purpose is to delight in the God who's infinitely delightful. The primary purpose of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to delight in what is truly delightful. And in so doing, that's what gives our work its purpose. That's what gives our productivity its framework. That's what gives our relationships their strength. That's what gives um, everything we do in life. It's what makes life worthwhile. You take the delight out of life, and life is no longer worth living. You are taking the very life out of life, and you're living a death. And some of you, that's the life you've been living, man. You just got your head down. You are a mule. You are carrying your pack, and you are trudging ahead because you feel like that's what God's telling you to do. I will put one foot in front of the other, and I will keep going. And I will even take a day off because God tells me to. But there's no delight. There's no joy. You weren't created to be productive. You were created to worship and out of that worship to be productive. Out of that rest, out of that delight to be productive. It's an issue of wiring. See, what I had done to my heart, and this is what I was looking back, this wasn't just this summer. I've been doing it my whole adult life, but my rhythms, my educational rhythms, I think masked it. I was running my life As if I were like a computer <laughs> plugged into an outlet designed for a dryer, like 220, running through circuits that were not designed, right? It fries the circuit board. So what do you do? You plug it in and it starts overheating and you unplug it. And you plug it in and it starts overheating and you unplug it. That was the, that was the nature of my whole adult life. I sprinted and then crashed and then sprinted and then crashed. And I finally got to a point where I could no longer crash and that thing stayed plugged in and it fried my circuit board. And it revealed to me that I had sinful habits. And in fact, I had a sinful perception of God. I looked at God and instead of seeing Him, you guys, all of God's commands are rooted not in His need to be boss, but in the way He wired us to find joy. When He commands us 
to rest. What he's saying is, I wired you for rest. I wired you to delight in what is truly delightful. I wired you to work from that delight, not for it. Because it will become the source of your energy. It will become the source of your joy. It will become the source of your hope. You guys, that's the magic key for me that unpacked and, 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 and really helped me discover the beauty of Sabbath. I mean, literally, I, from that day forward, man, I, I changed my calendar. And I, I, I saw a day off, and I'm like, uh-uh, Sabbath. I started putting Sabbath on my calendar. And, and I started looking forward to it. I look forward to my Sabbath every week now. Because you know what I do on my Sabbath? I refocus my heart on what is truly delightful. I get to move back into freedom, back into joy. See, I was created not to be a pastor. I was created not to lead a growing church. I was created not to see this great mission move forward. I was created to be a worshiper. The number one job description of being a human is to delight in what is truly delightful. That's what we call worship. And to stop delighting in things that are not infinitely, ultimately delightful. God has told me that if I don't, I'll fry my circuits. You guys, true rest, deep rest, doesn't come from escaping. It doesn't come from a reduced workload. Those things may be part of it. It doesn't come from, from more change or less change. It doesn't come from alienating people that are too needy. It, doesn't, it just doesn't come from making those kinds of changes. Some, sometimes those changes are necessary. Sometimes those changes are healthy. But that is not where true, deep rest comes from. True, deep rest comes from delighting in the things that are truly delightful and letting that unleash within your soul joy and hope and purpose. Turning your delight away from the things, your ultimate delight, away from the things that are not worthy of that ultimate delight. Stopping looking to things that aren't God to be God for you. To stop looking to things that aren't God to do for you what only God can do and start looking to God to be what He is, which is infinitely delightful, infinitely fulfilling, infinitely worthy of the outpouring of our souls. You guys, this is a very simple idea. And in some ways, it's deceptively simple. And that's why I want to take six weeks. We're going to do this, man. We're going to sit in this thing for six weeks. And, and, and I am so excited. We have this thing mapped out. I believe that God is going to work deep change in our hearts because he's working deep change in mine. Man, God has put me through the lab, and I'm so excited to help share the lesson with you. So I look forward to joining um, you when I get back from Kyrgyzstan. Over the next couple of weeks, Corey and Dan um, will be taking the pulpit, and, and we've already worked out, and, and this message is going to keep driving forward. We're not leaving the series. Um, and, then I, and then I'm going to come back for the final um, four weeks to finish it out with you. Um, and I look forward to that. I'm praying for you guys while I'm away, and I appreciate your prayers for me. You guys, take a few minutes. I want you to look at the reflection questions we're going to put on the screen. Take some time to pray. Take some time to reflect. Create a little bit of space. I know, two minutes of silence. Three minutes of silence. For some of you, that's hard. Create some space. Listen to the Spirit of God. I start asking some heart questions because I believe God's going to start leading you to things that are truly freeing and truly wonderful. God bless you guys.